Okay, we're going to um, carry on with our reteaching of uh, um, the truth of New Covenant. So this will be part two tonight. We covered the basics of New Covenant understanding last time out. And so I want to take you to the next step of essential understanding for getting a grasp of all that the New Covenant means and uh, what the implications are for our own lives. So I want to talk to you tonight uh, about love and the truth about freedom. We talked last week about a new covenant, the truth about freedom. Tonight I want to talk about love and the truth about freedom. Um, have you ever asked the question, some of you are not philosophical enough or go back enough or got too much going on, but have you ever asked the question, why did God create humankind? In essence, if we first of all go by the presumption that God exists, that God is, um, and then go by the secondary assumption of that, that, that God had angels and created angels, um, there had to be some reason, if you think like I think, for God to, to create hum, humankind. Uh, one would also have to conclude that um, God in deciding to do that, if he decided to do that, which I believe he did, but we'll talk about that, uh, presented himself with a whole set of problems and issues that uh, ultimately would cost him probably the ultimate that a God could ever have to pay, in which that God himself, in essence, in the form of Jesus, would have to die to fix the issue that was in the creation that he decided to make. So we have to conclude that either God had no idea how this thing would go, or he always had some inclination of how it might work out, but was desirous to get involved in whatever it was that, that humankind could provide for God himself. So we have to ask in, in, in the context of that question, where, where is the evidence and what are the clues that might help us come to an understanding of, of why God would create humankind in the first place. Now, I want to drop a concept to you um, initially that um, some of you will need to open your heart and mind enough to, to accept this because what I'm proposing to you is that, is that God had a need in his own heart and that God actually was driven by this need that was in his own heart. Um, if you can make space for that, then you will see as we go along that it will allow you to get some understanding of why God is the way he is and also why he does the things he does. And, and as far as I'm concerned, you begin to see who he really is. Not the construct of religion, but, but who God really is. So... In order to do that, I want to take you to some verses that, that many years ago um, I became aware of and I, I, I've always had an impact upon my life. Um, I first heard this concept, and I just want to give um, respect and honor for this, um, uh, talked by a guy called David Phillips, who I respected greatly. I thought David was a great thinker and uh, came and served in our church with um, my father-in-law for several years, going a long way back now, uh, when we met in another building over in, in, in Acom. But David got up one 
uh, one Sunday morning and had a moment of inspiration, just forgot his notes, and he came out with this question. And, and I wrestled that question, and I, I believe that what David saw was, was incredible. And, and the thought based around Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. So God's created man, Adam, from the dust of the earth, and, um, and then when God looks at Adam, it says a very interesting thing because it says, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, if you think of God as being perfect and doing everything perfect, um, then you have to bring into that equation how God's creation could be incomplete and imperfect if you measure perfection by those criteria. Uh, Because when God looks at the man, God says about the man, and this is also interesting because uh, it's God learning something about the creation that he has just made. So uh, I would post to you straight from the beginning that some of our concepts about God knowing everything immediately struggle and we're only into Genesis chapter 2. Because either God knew this would happen, and so it would say, and God knowing that the man would need something else, decided, but it doesn't. It says that the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He recognized something in the heart of the man who he had created that somehow stirred something in, in, in God's heart. Now, if we go to verse 19, it gets very interesting because... In order to resolve this need that God perceives in the heart of Adam, it says the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the air and all the birds of the air and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Once you have those words tagged on the end, it is very evident that the objective of the exercise in bringing all of existing creation in the earth before Adam was to see that if among existing creation a suitable helper could be found. Can you see that? It's actually quite plain. So having done that, it says no suitable helper was found. So in view of that, it said so So the man gave names to all the animals, but then verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he removed one of the man's ribs, closed up the face, placed with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. So, here's the lesson. God recognizes a need in Adam. That need is an aloneness. It's a need for fellowship. God then goes through what is a parable and a real experience. In that before Adam, he brings everything else that he has created to see whether something that's already been created can meet the need that's in the heart of Adam. But there is nothing to meet that need, so God does something amazing. God makes something to meet that need, right? 
He builds something. If you like the word create, then that's okay in, the, in this current context. He creates something to meet that specific need that he has recognized in Adam, which is that it's not good for the man to be alone. So, let's, let's just think a little, okay? Let's, let's just imagine a little. So here's God in his heaven, and he has a need. How do we know he has a need? Because everything that he's already created, the angelic beings of whatever nature and kind they are, which you can read about in the same Bible, obviously, when they appeared before him, could not meet the need. No suitable helper was found, right? And so in order to resolve the problem, God made man in his image and in his likeness. So now we have a reason for God to make man because there was nothing else in what he had created to meet the need that was in his own heart. Now we have to wrestle with this issue of God having a need because the thought is if God had or has a need, does that not make him imperfect? Well, there's several things we could say about that, even in the subject of perfection, which is another story for another day. But what I do believe we do is confuse incompleteness with imperfection. One can be incomplete without being Imperfect. God was never imperfect in himself, but you can be incomplete while not being imperfect. Or in other words, because of the nature of who you are, you have a need for something to complete you in your perfection. Now, there are a couple of things we have to think about here in the context of God having a need. One is, did God have a need because God didn't have everything that was necessary for him to be God? Well, the answer to that would have to be no, because he'd existed as God before whatever this need was expressing had come about. But there's definitely a need, which we can see here. Otherwise, none of us would be sat here tonight, okay? So, so there's another thought, another possibility, and that thought is this, that, that God being three persons... Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? And if you wrestle with that and think, how can God, if he is one God, be three persons? There's a really simple illustration I can give you on that, okay? I am Christine's husband. I am Albert and Doreen Chapman's son. I am Joel and Connie Chapman's Father, I am Riley, Ch Riley Howcroft's grandfather. So which am I? Which of those am I? The truth is I am all of them. But when I'm with Joel, I'm a father. When I'm with Chris, I'm a husband. When I'm with Riley, I am a grandfather. When I was with my parents, I was a son. So I am all those things, but I am one. So therefore the idea of God being Father, Son, and Spirit, or if we're accurate to Scripture, in the beginning he was called the Word, the, the expressed part of the nature of, 
of God. It's not such a wild concept to, to understand. So, so the issue is, if, if God is Father, Son, and Spirit, could it be that this incredible fellowship that they shared between themselves as Father, Son, and Spirit, this wonderful dynamic that brought worlds into being, right? That made dreams into reality. Could it be that God could not contain himself but desperately wanted someone with whom they could share the fellowship that they had with each other to actually bring that someone absolutely into the same fellowship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Spirit and the Spirit has with the Father and the Spirit has with the Son to bring them into that same fellowship. Now, if you leap forward in the narrative of the Bible, you will see that that was always God's objective to bring us in to share the same fellowship that he has within himself so that we could be in God and God could be in us. That we would be one with him and he would be one with us. Yeah, the circle of trust. So I would propose to you that yes, God did have a need, but the question would be, was that need motivated or or was what he did motivated by a, a need to have or a need to share? So for me, God did have a need, but it wasn't a need to have because he already had stuff. He already had angels. He already had creation. It was a need to share. Somehow he did not have someone with whom he could share the fullness of his fellowship. So this begins the the real story of what the new covenant was trying to reestablish in in our lives. So, So... If we come from this and realize God was incomplete, but he wasn't imperfect, and his incompleteness was simply because he so wanted to share the fellowship of what he has with someone else, that that God looking at all creation, no suitable helper was found. So God made man in his image. Does that make sense? Okay. So... That then leads us on, having established that about who God is and the way God does things, to what I want to really talk about tonight. In, in, in 1 John, or 1 John, whether you're from England or America, wherever it is, chapter 4, and verse 8 and 16, both have this statement within them, God is love. God is love. It's a fascinating statement that translates in our minds to something which it is not. It translates in our minds, therefore, that God loves. That's not what it says. Or that God has love. That's not what it says. It says God is love. So this statement is not describing his behavior It's actually declaring his nature. So love is not a behavior that God picks up and uses towards humanity. Love is his nature. It's not describing an act, something that God does. Oh, well, God loved me today. How many of you know it's not possible to say God loved me today? Because that would suggest that other days he didn't love you. And it would also say that you must have done something for God to have loved you today. 
So to say God loved me today is not correct because that's describing an act. But God is love is not describing an act, it's describing a state of being. So God is love describes the nature of God. It describes the state of his being. If this is true, then love to God is not a choice. So we immediately have some huge problems in how the gospel narrative has developed an understanding in the world because it would be assumed from some of the things that we have said and some of the things that we have heard that God has a choice. But the truth is, if God is love, that's what he is. And therefore, he does not have a choice. He simply cannot help himself because he is love. He has to give himself. And because he has to give himself, it has to be all of him. Because if you're giving yourself, it's all of you. So God gives all of him and all of him is love because God is love. So most are aware, um, even with a small knowledge of scripture, and if you're not, I'll make you aware of this, of one of the key verses that are quoted from, from the New Testament in, 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 in John chapter one and verse 29, where John the Baptist, seeing Jesus coming, says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wanna just put you a different, I want to just put you a different, a different edge on that, okay? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, okay? The Lamb of who? So the question is, whose Lamb was Jesus? You see, it's easy to read that and then, because of some of our understanding of the gospel, feel that he was our lamb, which he was the lamb that was our sacrifice, but he was first and foremost God's lamb, okay? Now, you see why I want you to understand this in a moment. Because Jesus may be the lamb for sinners, but he's first and foremost God's lamb, because in saving fallen humanity, God meets his own need. It's God's lamb. He's got to meet that need. Bring us into fellowship. It's God's lamb. He's going to meet his need. Now, there's another interesting little story in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham is called by God to take his only son and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now, uh, this is a hotbed of debate um, inside some circles of the church and also in, in some circles outside of the church, of what can God be like if God would tell a man to actually sacrifice his own son? Think about it. But we're not going to talk too much about it today. What I am going to say about it is this, that when Abraham took his son and he put him on an altar and prepared the altar and was ready to sacrifice his son, the, there was a provision made and the provision was a ram or a lamb caught in the thicket, okay? What was interesting is that before Abraham went to the brink of sacrificing his son, when his son said to him, here's the fire and here's the, the wood, but, but where is the lamb for an offering? Abraham responded, my son, and, and here's how some versions say, God will provide a lamb for an offering. 
or God will provide himself a lamb for an offering. So I was raised, and it was good teaching, it was nice teaching that God will provide himself a lamb for an offering, meaning prophetically that God would actually give himself as the lamb. There is, there is truth in that, much truth in that. But if you look at the literal Hebrew, it, it doesn't actually convey that thought. The literal Hebrew would say, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. Or in other words, we're back to the same thought of, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, God was making provision to meet the need that was in himself. So we have a God who is driven by a need who makes provision for that need to be met. Now, don't start thinking because we said need that God must be a selfish God because God is a selfless God. But you have to understand that the meeting of that need was the benefit of all humanity because it would bring us into what it was that he had, which was that wonderful fellowship. So, I'm just putting you some pieces together here. So we have to ask then in that context if God will provide for himself and God meeting his need... What is the goal and the objective of love? What is the goal and the objective of love? What is the goal and the objective of God loving me? See, here's a couple of things that we have to get to grips with. The goal and the objective of love is not to be worshipped. Okay? I've used this illustration before, but if I had said to Chris when we were going out together, will you marry me? And she said, yes, I'd love to, but why? And I said, because I want you to worship me. I guarantee you we would not be married now. How many of you know that you don't approach the intimacy of relationship with the statement, I want you to love me, or the object of my love is to get you to worship me? But here's where I'm trying to help you, that what translates in our mind from the jumble of stuff if we don't separate it and truly understand God's purposes, we get in our minds that somehow God loved us so that we would worship him. If that is true, then we would have to say God is a narcissist. If you don't know what a narcissist is, a narcissist is someone who is obsessed with self-love. And everything they do is based on loving themselves rather than loving someone else. What's fascinating is that in psychology and human relationships, narcissists make the best lovers until they get bored. The problem is when a narcissist falls in love with you as you think, they have not fallen in love with you, they have fallen in love with themselves and they are loving themselves through you. That's what a narcissist does. And so we often have to untangle relationship issues because narcissists seem to love very greatly, but then you find out after a period of time that they were just loving themselves and you were the vehicle and they move on to the next vehicle to love themselves. So God is not a narcissist. So therefore the objective of God's love is not to create a church where everybody worships him. Now worship's good and worship's advisable and the truth is, it's good to worship and we should worship and I should worship my wife, but that was not the objective of love. 
the goal, the objective of love is not to be obeyed. Otherwise, we create this God who's very fickle, who only responds to us when we obey him, right? And I suppose that in itself is another story, conversation, debate about what part obedience plays in the whole relationship. If obedience or disobedience has an impact on love or not love, then we have a big problem because God is not love, but God is love. So obedience was not his objective, okay? Because that would make God a controller. And I could use the same illustration again. Chris, I want to marry you. Why do you want me to marry you? So that you'll obey me. They are not the words or the intentions of love, even someone who is loving. So when you have someone whose very essence is love, that cannot be the objective or the goal of him loving me. So what is the goal and the objective of love? It's very simple. The goal and the objective of love is to be loved back. Pure love has one objective and one objective alone, to be loved back. True love can only have its need satisfied when it is loved back. Even Shakespeare understood the horror of what he called in Old English requited love. Or in other words, when you deeply love somebody and they don't love you back, how does that feel? If you've never experienced it, it's the most horrendous feeling in the world. You will never feel more incomplete as a human being than when you love somebody with all your being and they don't love you back. So if God is love and he's not loved back, does God feel anything? Or has God become this emotive being in the sky, you take it or leave it. I don't care, these humans, they're just like ants and I have a magnifying glass to burn them if I wish or to release them if I wish, they're just for fun. Or is it that we actually are the very focus of God's desire to meet that need within him, which is that love has to be loved back and so God needed to create someone that would love him back. And therefore the whole objective of creation, the whole objective of the gospel, the whole objective of God's dealings with humanity is for God to get you and me to love him back. That changes the ball game, doesn't it? Changes the ball game from a God who is trying to moralize the world, that his objective is to destroy evil, to get rid of the devil, to judge sinners, It changes the weight of emphasis to say, no, the whole weight of God's being is to be loved back because God is love. So the goal and the objective of love is to love back. Therefore, everything that God does is with that end in mind because love only comes to fulfillment when the lover is loved back. So it would be fair to say then that the primary expression of the nature of God is that he longs to be loved And that drives everything that he does before anything because God is love. The primary expression of his nature is that he longs to be loved. Now, we have a little problem there that will help you to understand one of the other whys of humanity. You see, love cannot be measured or verified in the absence of total freedom. So if I don't make you 
totally free, that you have absolute absolute autonomy over your decisions and choices. How can I ever know as a being of love whether you really love me? Or whether you're only loving me for a reason? That's one of the reasons I've moved very much away from a gospel of condemnation, a gospel of unrighteousness rather than a gospel of righteousness because how does God know I'm not loving him because I'm just frightened of him? How many of you know there are lots of wives who are beaten by the husbands who respond in love and kindness because of the fear that they have about the beating that they will receive. And, and, and we so often can create a perverted view of loving God that actually is more based on fear than it is on kindness. So would you agree that love cannot be measured in the absence of total freedom. Love cannot be verified in the absence of total freedom. So if the primary expression of the nature of God is that he longs to be loved, then surely the second expression of the nature of God is that he fiercely defends and promotes freedom. Now that's the frightening bit because if you can convince some people that the primary nature of God is that he longs to be loved and therefore everything that he does is to that end, they then won't buy the fact that in order for that to be a reality, you have to defend and promote total freedom. But in the absence of that, true love cannot be verified. Let me throw a few scriptures at you from the New Testament. I'll just do these quickly. They may not get on the screen before I've moved on. But I'll give you the references. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So freedom was important to God and when he sent Jesus, freedom was important in the sending of Christ into our world. So we have to understand that, that very often the emphasis is that Christ came into our world to be, and I'll use, a, I'll use a word here, a penal substitutionary sacrifice for sin. What that means is that God punishes somebody in our place. That again is another conversation. But that's not just the conversation, that's not just the question. Christ clearly came to set us free into freedom. Now, I always find that statement rather strange because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, what else would you set somebody free for but for freedom? But what Paul's highlighting in the book of Galatians is that we can sometimes set people free, but not into freedom. It's a partial freeing. It's just taking some burdens off. It's just changing a perspective here and there. But he says, you need to understand, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Or in other words, when he came and set us free, it was complete freedom. Now, of course, that's when people will want to come in and say, but freedom to do what? Freedom to be what? Well, if Christ brought us into total freedom, it's free to do whatever we want and be whatever we want to be. Now, now Paul covers that in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, where he says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, but everything is permissible. And he says it again, everything is permissible, but not everything will do you good, not everything will build you up. Some things will master you, but everything is permissible. In other words, Christ really did bring freedom. 
But you see, he had to risk freedom in order to verify true love. So the wonder of God is that he would risk us having complete freedom in order that he can verify the love that comes back to him. That's why I'm utterly convinced that some people are living outwardly perfect lives and God is not feeling the love. And there are some people living outwardly not very perfect lives, but God is totally feeling the love. And again, I know we often quote David as a classic example, King David in the Old Testament. How many of you know God was feeling the love? When David got it right and when David got it wrong, God was feeling the love. And you only have to read David's psalms, his love songs, his poems, to realize that in the battles of his own heart, one thing he is assured of is the love of God towards him. Sometimes he doesn't have the joy of the salvation that he's got, and he said, I'd like to get that back. But he never doubts the love that is poured upon his life. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He said, and if I fall, here's what happens. Goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. David's view was that in this freedom where sometimes we make mistakes, goodness and mercy are always following. And, and, and I've, I've said this for many years, that if goodness and mercy follow me, which is, which is the, the last part of Psalm 23, and I fall, what happens? I get run over by goodness and mercy. I get crushed by goodness and mercy. I have a collision with goodness and mercy. You need to realize that in the freedom that Christ brought, when we fall, when we fail, we have a collision with grace and mercy, with goodness and mercy, which we have to understand ties in with the New Testament. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring you closer to that in, sorry, the New Covenant, and I'll, I'll show you that a little more in a minute. Romans 8 verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He describes it as a glorious freedom there. John 8, 31 and 36, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It will impose freedom upon you. If the sun sets you free in verse 36, you are free indeed or you are free completely. Just one more, just you, you're getting the gist of this, okay? <clears throat> Second Corinthians 3 verse 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. We are Liberty is when you are totally released from what was previously a condition of captivity and bondage. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the essence of who he is, there is liberty. Where the God who is love is, by his Spirit, there is liberty and freedom. So this is important for you to understand. Not that we might stop paying attention to how we live because that's important, even in the context of one another's lives and, and in the context of our own life. You know, I, I once was so foolish when I was an apprentice at, at British Rail Engineering. Uh, we were doing some, some metal work, punching some metal, and, and uh, I was messing with one of the boys, and I put my hand on the, on the steel plate where you do the striking, uh, and I said, I said, go on, then hit my hand. So he did with a mallet, turned my fingers blue. Crazy. You say, well, what's the point of that? The point is this. I put my hand there and said, hit it, and he did, and it hurt. There was no, oh, but God intervened, and God stepped in, and 
I was delivered. No, that stupidity caused me pain. So there are issues in our life, you know. The truth is we can live as we want, but then don't complain about the result of the choices that we make, okay? <laughs> and that's what teaches us. So we learn. It says that it teaches us to live our lives in a godly way. Now, again, we have ways of saying godly way. It means it teaches us to live in the understanding of the nature of God, which is love, and the grace and kindness and the goodness and mercy that flows, so we stop doing stupid things, okay? So, so there's liberty, there's freedom. Now, the reason I said that is because we have to make this other point, that obedience is no proof of love in the absence of total freedom. Um, isn't it interesting that we go back to Genesis again, because you can learn most of these things from there, um, God, God plants the garden, it's called Eden, and he puts the man into the garden. But in the garden, there are two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, of the tree of, the life, you, tree of life you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the system of right and wrong, you must not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, Again, we, we, we could talk about that whole thing that, that the issue was that when we live by the criteria of what's right and what's wrong and what's good and evil, God says there'll only ever be one outcome and that's death. And it's caused me to ask the question for many years now, a decade, caused me to ask the question, why do we insist on trying to turn the gospel into a system that God said at the very beginning won't work? It's about right and wrong and it's about good and evil. God says, don't go there, it won't work. See, the truth is found in the life of God. The tree of life was the expression of the nature of God. What I've loved about that, and I just share this for your, your thought, is you can define right and wrong and good and evil. It was fascinating. We had an inebriated man in here the other week who wanted to ask Joel when he preached, just tell us what's right and what's wrong. See, you can define right and wrong. But if I were to say, what is life? What is it? What is life? It's not, well, that you breathe in your lungs or your heart beats. That's, that's, that's not life. That's being alive, but it's not life. The truth is you cannot define life. Life was never meant to be defined. It was meant to be experienced. So God says, if you get down the line of wanting to define right and wrong and good and evil, it will kill you. But while ever you live in the desire to experience life and you understand my nature, that is what will give you eternity, right? That's what will stop death dominating your life. So obedience is no proof of love in the absence of total freedom. Obedience extracted through fear, control, Intimidation or threat is not the result of love. I've got to say this because, again, it's critical for your understanding. There is a difference between obedience and compliance. Uh, most obedient children are actually compliant children. <laughs> and uh, whereas parents, we would love to boast and say, oh, my children are so obedient. You don't know until you can see them out of your sight. You, you don't know whether your little sweetheart's obedient 
until you get to be a fly on the wall when they go to university. So you don't know. Because what most of us experience is compliance, and compliance is not obedience, okay? Compliance is doing what I have to do to meet the standard that I've been asked to meet before the people who are watching me requiring that standard. That is not obedience. Obedience is something that happens regardless of any pressure or any influence. It's something that you become an obedient person. Obedience is actually at its root an obedience to the fellowship that God is bringing, that God is love. I become obedient to the truth that God is love. Okay? So, the question is, why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil next to the tree of life? Uh, I mean, why didn't he, if Mount Everest had burst out of the ground then, and if there was such a thing as snow and ice and freezing conditions, why didn't God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the top of Mount Everest, where the air was thin, and the temperature was freezing, and the humans were naked? Now, wouldn't you have thought that, that that would have been the best idea? But the truth is, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in as accessible proximity as he did the tree of life. You have to ask the question, why? Now, I don't agree with some uh, theologians who say that God built evil into humanity. I, I, I don't agree with that. What I do see here is not that the evil that's built into humanity is finding its way out. What I see is that, that in all God's creation, he has to make a way to verify that the love that is being shown to him is genuine love. So he has only one alternative. He has to give you the right to say no. He has to give you the possibility to do the opposite thing, to make the bad choice, to make the wrong choice. He has to give you the possibility to make the death conclusion because true love cannot be verified in the absence of total freedom. Are you getting this now? So right from the beginning of Scripture, this principle out of God meeting his need becomes a reality that in our world there still has to be a freedom through which God can verify true love. Now, the wonderful thing is, is that I, as I go through life, and by the grace of God, I'm able to make choices that connect me with the fullness of that love of God. It becomes genuine because I have the choice not to. Okay? So, the only grounds on which... Obedience has any righteous value to God is when it's done out of or in response to love. That's what it has to be. So, I want to run you now to some more things that, that John said. We already talked about John in chapter 4 saying God is love. In verse 10 of 1 John chapter 4, John says this is love. So, so we're going to get a definition from, from John. Now, again, I've said this many times that um, if you look at John who wrote these letters and is also the perpetrator of the Gospel of John, it's the same character that's attached in there and to the book of Revelation, you, you have John was known as John the Beloved. 
Um, he was the disciple at the Last Supper who was leaning on Jesus, you know, in the old uh, Eastern way of leaning, uh, laying down basically, inclined on one elbow. Sounds very uncomfortable to me. You know, because I was raised with the old King James and, you know, John laid his head on Jesus' breast. It's like, I just accepted that, you know. It's like you knew because you were raised in that tradition and understanding. Some of you might wonder what that meant. Well, it meant that, you know, in the closeness, John's kind of laying on Jesus and asking him stuff. So, so, so John in all of this ha- has an experience of Jesus that carries through in all the challenges of then seeing the church develop that draws John by the time you get to these three little books, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, of which you just have another guy called Jude, is a real Jude, before the book of Revelation. John has basically one theme, and that theme is God is love. He, he, he's watched the emerging development of, of the doctrine of that very early church in, in that first period from Jesus' death in, 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 in around 30 AD to 80, 85 AD. We're coming up here. He's watched all that's going on and his conclusion is, listen, this is the core of everything. God is love. But he feels he has to define that. So in verse 10 he says, this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Now, if you watch the weight of any faith tradition developing, even in its purity, what begins to happen is the the shift comes to what we do to earn the favor of God how we do our religion, how we do our faith, how we do our belief. And so invariably what happened, even in the early church, even though grace was being taught, works became more and more dominant. Well, it's what you have to do and it's what you have to eat and not eat and what you must wear and mustn't wear and where you go and where you don't go. Already that was creeping in. So John says, whoa, wait a minute. You're now measuring this thing by how much you think you love God. And he says, stop it. This is love. Not that we love God. In other words, John's saying, I don't give a flip how much you think you love God. You may love him a lot. You may love him a little. But I don't give a flip how much you love God. What I'm interested in, have you grasped that the truth of this, the power of this, is not in you loving God, it's in God loving you. Because if it's all about how God loves you, that can't shift because he's already said God is love. But if it's about you loving God, you're then going to develop this gospel that says if you pray more, if you fast more, if you witness more for Jesus, if you read the Bible more, if you give more, If you don't do these things and do these things, then God will somehow love you more. He said, listen, we've got to get that out of the equation as a qualifying factor. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. My primary objective with you guys is not to get you to love God more. My primary objective is to get you to see how much God loves you. Because John says, here's the key of that. In verse 19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. 
Or in other words, the real love that counts is the love that is expressed out of being overwhelmed by the fact that he loves us. Any other love John is suggesting has come from false means. It's like counterfeit money. We went and printed our own counterfeit money. He said that love doesn't count. And, and we can often try to display that love by better prayers or, or by a better lifestyle or, or by a better knowledge of the Bible, all of which may be good in their own context. But it becomes a counterfeit currency. And I watch when I listen to so much preaching across, across the world that, that so often that currency is being, if you have more of this and if you do more of that, then you're closer to God. Very sad. John says, no, here's the key. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And we love him because... He first loved us. That's the love that God is looking for. The love that is a response to him first loving us. Or in other words, coming back to where we began, that God's objective is to be loved back. The need in his heart, because he is love, is to be loved back. So John says when you fully appreciate his love for you, you will love him because you appreciated his love for you. And that becomes the love that God is looking for. And of course then, that leads us to, to the words of Jesus in John's Gospel, which are very powerful and extremely significant and should become a memorized, um, digested, absorbed truth in your life, which is this, Jesus said, a new command I give you is fascinating because if you understand what we said about the new covenant, uh, the new covenant is a one law covenant and it's not a law that we keep, it's a law that he keeps and that that law that comes is about the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that that, that becomes the law that he keeps, that immovable love, that indwelling love, then you realise Jesus said, okay, the new covenant's getting rid of the old covenant. So I'm going to give you a new commandment right? We had the Ten Commandments and the law. Jesus said, a new commandment I'm going to give you. And this was it, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So there's been a a, a seismic shift from what we thought it was to what it now is. It's now no longer love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, which you can't do anyway. It's now no longer love your neighbor as yourself, which is a good thing, but none of us are perfect at it. To him saying, this is the new command that I give you. Why do I give you it? Because we love him, because he first loved us, because this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. This new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So therefore, my ability to function in the world is actually proportionate to my willingness to live under the love that he has for me. So the kingdom that God was wanting to establish through Jesus, this new genesis, this new creation, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven manifested here is built on this one command, that you love one another as I have loved you. So therefore the central message 
of this new covenant has to be the understanding of the extent of God's love for us, not the demand of our love for him. Because when you understand the extent of his love for you, you won't have to demand a love for him because that love will go back in response. That's why I love what the Bible says, that the one who is forgiven much loves much. That's a very clever statement from Jesus because he was sorting out the religious from the real. He was sorting out the people who don't love much. He was saying, okay, this is the riddle. If you don't love much, it's because you don't think you needed to be forgiven of much. So therefore, you're self-righteous. But if you find you're loving much, it goes hand in hand with an acceptance that you were forgiven much. So therefore, my job is not to make you feel better about who you are and what you've done. My job is to help you to be honest about who you are and what you've done. So we come to Romans 3.23, says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Good Jews, bad Jews, good Gentiles, bad Gentiles, wise Greeks, foolish Greeks, males, females, all have sinned and come short. Because when you grasp that, if you are forgiven much, you love much. That's why we rejoice in our sin. Because without our sin, we would have no revelation of the forgiveness of God. So as one great old saint, I think it was Teresa of Avila said, that that first the fall, then the recovery from the fall, both are the grace of God. Because unless you understand that you need to be forgiven much, you ain't going to love much. So the crazy paradox is this. We have to feel bad to feel good. We have to know we absolutely don't qualify in order to know we absolutely do qualify. And that's why Paul says this crazy thing. He said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's like, Paul, how can you be strong when you're weak? Because if you're weak, you're weak. And if you're strong, you're strong. Because Paul's saying, listen, I understand that my weakness makes me strong because he who is forgiven much loves much. So within this whole context of the understanding of God's love, it's not about how much I love him, but it's about how much he loves me. So I want to just take a couple more steps to to wrap this up. I want to connect this now with with what is a classic... um, widely memorized and extensively recognized chapter in in the whole of the New Testament. Most people will have only heard this in the context of weddings or it's very often read at public occasions like commemorations, war commemorations and things like that. And it's the chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about love. And it kicks off in the first three verses by saying, "My, this is my summary of the translation. If you think you know everything, if you can flash sparks from your hands and lightning bolts from your behind, if you think you understand all mysteries, If you think you're a brilliant scientist, psychologist, philosopher, if you think you 
are the best giver in all the world, proportionate to who you are, to the fact that you'd even give your body to be burned, he said, if you do all those things but have not love, I am nothing. Now, every one of those things would be a noble, desirable, and applaudable thing. And yet John, sorry, Paul in his wisdom writing here says, but, but all those things actually will not bring you to an understanding of the truth because the truth doesn't lay in, in the gathering together of all those doing things. He said it's actually, it, it's in the being thing, the being loved rather than the doing stuff. And so then Paul launches into some statements about love. In verse 4, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. If all we had of Scripture was this one chapter, you would have everything that you need to know about everything you need to know in the context of God. It's not correcting your morality. It's not pointing out your sin. It's not bringing judgment upon you. It's simply describing to you God himself. And saying, see me, this is me now, Of course, people will often say, you can put in there the word Christ. You know, Christ is patient, Christ is kind, or Jesus does not envy, Jesus does not boast. It's very nice, it's true. Um, But I would take you to a deeper level that says that if God is love, and we really believe that, and if we don't believe that, then we we have to tear that page out of what John says. But if we really believe that, then would you not agree that Paul is describing God here? Unfortunately, often the God who is preached does not appear to me to be patient or kind or without envy. In fact, the way some people talk about the battle between God and the devil and demon spirits is almost like God is envious of their influence and doesn't boast, not proud. Did you see what? And then we get this fascinating statement at the end of verse 5. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now that either means love keeps no record of wrongs or it means something that I don't know what it means because I don't know how else you can interpret that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So if God is love, okay, it's not difficult this, folks. If God is love... And love keeps no record of wrongs. Does God keep record of wrongs? Now, if you can't answer that, you've got a huge problem in your belief. You are confused. You're schizophrenic. But the God of most Christians is a schizophrenic God. It's the God who can turn angry just in a moment, all be kind and giving. It's a schizophrenic God who saves Billy from getting on flight whatever 
while, while 240 people die on flight, whatever, but good for Billy, because God loves Billy. You see what I mean? These are, these are conflicts we have to answer because in the context of our conversation with the world now, who are, who are not frightened by these issues and therefore are going to raise these questions, you better know what you're going to say. If God is love and love keeps no record of wrongs, does God keep record of wrongs? So would it therefore be fair to say that when Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 31 and verse 34 about the new covenant that your sins and unrighteous acts I will remember no more, that he was actually describing what God was always about and desired to do that in the new covenant is reinstituted into humanity. And then, and then it's repeated in the book of Hebrews whether Paul write, wrote it or somebody else. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 in the repeat of this very prophecy from Jeremiah. So we've got Old Testament, New Testament. Your sins and unrighteous acts, their sins and unrighteous acts, I will remember no more. So if we are in the new covenant, which we established last week, we already are. And in the new covenant, their sins and unrighteous acts, I will remember no more. What has simply been restored is the order of things that comes back to the central feature, which is God is love. That everything God did was always to meet that need that was in his own heart. He cannot possibly be without a need, because if God is love and love is not returned, you can't possibly be without a need. It's impossible for God to be without a need when love has to be returned and when you want to share that fellowship. So if that was the purpose of God, then in the new covenant, what he has to do to make that possible is say, your sins and unrighteous acts I'll remember no more. He has to say, listen, because God is love, Love keeps no record of wrongs. So however God is going to deal with me, it will not be according to a record of my wrongs. Now, because the problem is, what leverage do you then have to make people love God? Because now we've removed the leverages of, well, you know, you'll go to hell if you don't love God. Well, I'm going to love God, then I don't want to go to hell. We've removed those things because God has to give total freedom. And in that total freedom, he has to say, he keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes it always perseveres. That's going on in your life right now. It's going on in my life right now. God always trusts me. What that, what that looks like sometimes is, I trust you'll get it right next time, Jen. Always trust. Well, Jen, okay, we didn't quite make it, but next time, I trust you're going to get it right, Jen. There is a trust that God has in humanity. Because with the apple of his eye, with the desire of his heart, with the longing of his soul. And God, because of his great love, is not going to let that be messed up to the extent that some people believe it's going to be messed up by humanity itself, by the devil, 
by demons or by religion. He's not going to let it. So we get verse 8. So love never fails. Okay, so if that's God, how, how do we interpret that? What do we make of that? Love never fails. For some of you who understand this terminology, do you, do you see why I'm, I'm very close to being a universalist, even though I'm not? Because when I read things like this, love never fails. I, I see that by hook or by crook, God, God is going to get at least almost all the way to what it was that he desired. It will only be in the utmost of circumstances where he cannot bring about a change of mind or a change of heart that he will not get what he's looking for. You see, if love needs to be loved back and love never fails, that suggests that he's going to be loved back by the great majority of the human race by one means or another. That's forced me to have to reassess my view of time and of what we loosely know of eternity and the purposes and the methods of God and the kindness of God and the goodness of God and that God is not like us. We would never punish anybody infinitely for something they did finitely, would we? Now, if, if you're saying, so what's the answer, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm lost in a mystery there, but, but what I do know is God's better than me. I know that God's judicial system is better than man's judicial system, so, so I can only see that it spreads beyond the walls that we have built for it, and whatever implications that has to your thinking, let it have those implications and think it through. Love never fails. So God's not going to fail in his objective. And so we do verse 13 and then, and then we're done. Now these three remain. So it's a bit like, you know, Paul's taken everything and said, okay, let's, let's shake everything out through the seven and see really whether we can break this down to what, what is the root of importance and get rid of all the other stuff. And he says, here's my conclusion. When you shake the sieve of thoughts and ideas and concepts, he says, I find only three things get stuck in the sieve. Only three things are big enough, important enough to remain. And he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, why would the greatest of these be love? Because love is the essence of who God is, and God has unilaterally, that means decided on his own behalf, without asking us, we're going to get loved whether you like it or not. You're going to get loved. God has decided. He is love. He can't help but love. So the greatest of these is love. But not my love for you or our love for one another, but the greatest of these is love in its truest understanding. The greatest of these is God. The greatest of these is love. Because God is love. So my experience of God is the experience of love. Okay? But here's what's important. It seems to me that in a our manipulation of the true gospel, 
we have reversed those three in importance and application. Here's, here's my conclusion of how I thought for many years and, and how I think the church still thinks mostly is that we go from faith to hope to love. So we have to have faith in God, which gives us the hope of salvation, which is fulfilled in Christ, and we receive the love of God. Did you get that? Okay. We have faith in God or in the word or the challenge or the conviction, which brings a hope for salvation, which is fulfilled in Christ, and then we experience the love of God. That's a pretty good picture there of, of either verbally or subconsciously how... Most traditional church doctrine looks at this. But he says, but the greatest of these is love. See, it's actually the other way around. When I get a grasp of how much he loves me, my heart becomes filled with hope. And when my heart becomes filled with hope... Faith is able to grow out of that hope. So I begin to believe that he really does love me as much as he said. I begin to believe he actually does like me. I begin to believe that his favor is upon my life, that I'm accepted. I begin to believe that there's nothing that I can do that will separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, I begin to believe that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I begin to believe that I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. I begin to believe things. That's not where I started. But you see, love, understanding the love of God, grasping the love of God, receiving the love of God, saturating yourself in the fact that God loves me here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And accepting that causes hope to emerge in the human heart and that hope gets taken hold of by faith and faith makes substance of the things that we hope for. So a true encounter with the love of God will fill you with hope and that calls forth faith. So we'll say this to to finish because I think understanding this about the love of God in the context of the new covenant basically leaves us here that the purpose of Jesus was not to change how God sees us, but it was to change how we see God. So along comes Jesus. Now if we take that old model and that old understanding, we need Jesus so God can look kindly upon us because our sins have separated us from God and God will turn his back on us. So therefore, if you think that through, what we're saying is that we need Jesus because his purpose is to change how God sees us. When actually it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the expression, the absolute representation of the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was the exact representation of who the Father is. In other words, when he comes and reveals that to us, it doesn't change how God sees us, but it's supposed to change how we see God. What our world needs right now is not hammering about how God sees them, which is not the message of the gospel. They need encouraging with how they can see God. 
because of what Jesus has done and because of the new covenant. So it makes the question arising out of the knowledge, and I've said this to you before, arising out of the knowledge that God is love, is not that we invite him into our lives, but he invites us into his life. He says, come be part of this fellowship. I, I, I created you for this reason. I will always have a need until I've got you in fellowship with me. I want to share with you the wonder of who we are as three people in the Godhead. The wonder of Father, Son, and Spirit. The absolute amazing fellowship. The oneness, the healing, the strength, the love, the power, the belonging. I want you to be part of that. And that's where the Father's heart is reaching out now to our world. And I believe that that is the true gospel. So love and the truth about freedom bring us to that point of understanding that God invites us to be part of the fellowship of the Godhead. Now, let me give you one last thought on that. The New Testament hammers us to say that we have become one in Christ Jesus. Paul says, let me phrase it this way. He is the head, you are the body. The head is in heaven, the body is on earth. You're in me, and I'm in the Father, Jesus said. If you're in me, you're in the Father, because I and the Father are one. There is this picture that is, 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 is attempting to be created in the New Testament that, that is not saying, here's God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and here's humanity. It's trying to paint the picture to say, Father, Son, Spirit, humanity. Right? Invited in, because if Christ said, now I'm the head and you are the body... Does a head exist without a body? Does a body exist without a head? Is the head and the body a whole person? So therefore, how much one do we become with God when we're in Christ? How much part of the whole essence of who he is are we invited into? We are invited into the absolute same fellowship as Father, Son and Spirit have with each other. Now you say... I don't know that I'm living there. I don't know that I've achieved that. Me neither. But what's the secret to that? The secret is when we yield to the understanding that God is love, that his objective is to be loved back, and that we love him back the more we understand his love for us, that the secret to that is in the recognition of our own weakness and imperfections and that we love much out of that and the more we do that, the more we are drawn into that fellowship and as we're drawn into that fellowship, the very life that is in God himself becomes the life that is in us, ourselves. It's the same life and we finish up back at the tree of life where death is ended and life has come. I think the two wonderful things of the New Testament narrative are this, that we are promised a new Genesis. And in that new Genesis, we're promised a resurrection. So a Genesis is a new created life. That new created life comes because we're promised a resurrection. You can only resurrect something that's dead. So God's saying, no matter, even if you're dead, if all the life's gone from you, if you're drained and empty and finished, I came to bring resurrection to you so that in that resurrection, you would live in the Genesis, which is new creation, a new creation 
a new creation. So God invites us into that in the new covenant and we'll put another piece to this next time we come together to talk. So there you go.